Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. Welcome to 180 Days Podcast After Dark. He jokes because we're doing this at night, which I'm not used to doing. (laughs) So welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we've been talking to uh, several educators and leaders and professional development folks. And over the course of the conversations, at some point, the the topic of curriculum comes up every time. And so I thought it would be a great idea to have someone who actually does curriculum for a living and uh, come join us. Um, so I am pleased to introduce Patrick Vanabush to our conversation. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Tim. Hi, Karen. Hi, Patrick. So Patrick has worked for NCTM, and then uh, he and I met when he was the director of mathematics at Discovery Education, which uh, maybe we can talk about a little bit, um, and currently is the chief learning officer for the Math Learning Center, which produces a phenomenal elementary curriculum called Bridges. My uh, joke before we started is Patrick owes me a visit because my school, we're actually one of his customers. I work at a K-12 school and we use Bridges for our K-5 curriculum. So I told him he needs to come down and visit his customers down here in Bogota, Colombia. So welcome, Patrick. Well, thank you. And actually, can you give us a little bit more background? Like, did you start off as a teacher? Did you go right into curriculum? You know, how did the path occur? Yeah, I actually took a job teaching whenever I first got out of college, and I taught in northwestern Pennsylvania for a little while. Oh, where? Because I live in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Uh, That's right. I I saw that. Um, I was in uh, Mercer, Pennsylvania, which actually boasts, I think, three things. So we were the first place that Shirley Fry, who is a former NCTM president, uh, where she started teaching. Uh, We are the hometown of Trent Reznor, who's the lead singer for Nine Inch Nails. And I don't know if this is still true, but uh, maybe 15 to 20 years ago, we had the youngest mayor in the country who was elected at age 19. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. That's very interesting. Some small claims to fame there. Um, But yeah, so I I taught in Mercer for a little while at the middle school level. And um, due to family circumstances, I was kind of looking for a change. And serendipitously, a professor of mine called and uh, mentioned the Math Counts Foundation, which at that point I had known because I had taken a group of students to one of their competitions, and they needed a curriculum coordinator to help deal with the materials that they produce. So I I did that, and then uh, I worked actually at PBS for a little while doing professional development. And then, as Tim said, at NCTM, I ran the Illuminations Project, which was a bunch of online lessons and resources for teachers. Which I love, by the way. I still oh, well, I still you. I still use them with my with my uh college students. So yeah, I love them. I was gonna say, which I still use. Oh, very good. It's it's a little bit of a bummer that the uh council unfortunately the the grant funding for that program went away so the council had to shift and everything is now behind the login. Right. Yes. Uh, where it all used true. to be free. So that's that's the downside. But the, the resources are still there, and, and the folks who did the work for me put together some really amazing things. Yeah, and it's it's worth it. You get a lot of great resources. Yes, behind the paywall, but quick pitch. If you're a teacher, I think you owe it to yourself to join your professional organization. Stop pitch. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for throwing that in there. I should have. Um, but that those uh, jobs combined sort of led to me going to Discovery, where I was the director of mathematics. And we developed the math tech book uh, that Tim had alluded to, 
um, which was sort of a nice culmination for me in some ways of bringing together um, digital resources with a full curriculum, you know, with great lesson plans, great problems like we used in math counts, like all that stuff wrapped together uh, into what I think became a really great curriculum. Um, and then a couple years ago, uh, needing a little bit of both a geographic and professional switch, I shifted to Portland, Oregon, where I'm now at the Math Learning Center, uh, and we do a K-5 curriculum, so I'm working in elementary now. So I'm curious, because they are all great, and they're all very much along the same kind of lines of discovery and inquiry and hands-on, that type of thing. I mean, was that a specific direction that you definitely felt was important to what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, probably the easiest way to say it is I'm not sure I had a choice. Um, And what I mean by that is I went to the Pennsylvania State University, and my professors there were... um, strong proponents of NCTM. Uh, our textbooks for our methods courses were uh, the NCTM curriculum and uh, curriculum standards from 1989. Uh, so it, if I didn't want to be that kind of a teacher, I was going to be forced to be by the way the professors taught our courses and the kind of the guidance they gave us. Um, but it also made sense to me whenever I was first starting out uh, in teaching what they had you know, brought forth in the courses that we took in college it just all made sense to me. The The ways that I had learned math when I was in school, I was good at it, but I didn't always understand. And I started to understand in college, seeing the methods that they were using. So it was it was really important to me that we keep those uh, ideas going whenever we develop materials. All right. So here's the big question. So we've been talking, like I said, we've been talking to the teachers and uh, administrators and PD leaders from the Dana Center And the question always ends up coming up. So I want to start from your perspective. What role do you see that curriculum plays in successful instruction? Um, You know, I think what I'll start with is quoting uh, the CEO of the Math Learning Center, my boss, uh, Rick Ludeman. He describes um, the Bridges curriculum as a box full of potential. And And I think that's where I would describe all curriculum. It provides the impetus for great lessons, even if it can't provide everything that a teacher is going to need. So it can bring forward the great problems. It can include some just-in-time professional development for teachers about, you know, what's the important math here? Why are we asking the questions we're asking? Um, How can we organize the classroom so that things are effective? Uh, And I think that's what curriculum can do for us and, and give teachers sort of that, you know, instead of having to go and dig somewhere for all those resources that are, you know, many times freely available on the web or in books or things like that, Trying to put it all together into one package is what becomes difficult, and curriculum can sort of do that for for schools and districts. So when you talk to teachers, in terms of whether it's during professional development or whether it's in the process as teachers select curriculum, what are they asking you to do? As a or what are they asking the curriculum to do? I should say, not you personally. Um, I, I think they're asking for a lot. So one is a, a guiding structure. We know that teachers are asked to do a lot and they're very busy. So so providing the structure for how they can put together uh, the classroom environment. Um, they're asking for things, especially from the Bridges curriculum, you know, the manipulatives and how to use them and and why to use them. Um, you know, we include um, we include bears and counters and and algebra tiles and all kinds of things like that in the bins that we ship to schools, but but how to use them and make sure that kids are getting the most out of them and seeing the connections between the movement of the manipulatives and what learning is happening. Um, those are the kinds of things that they continually come back and ask us for 
in terms of professional development that our curriculum consultants can provide to them. And how has that evolved in the era of COVID, both in terms of what they're looking for from you, the product from your from your curriculum product, as well as from the professional development you provide? Yeah, so we've we've had to make a lot of changes this past year, as as everyone has, especially the teachers. Being that it, our curriculum is mainly hands-on and we want kids to be fully engaged, that's difficult when kids can't be in school, when they can't be with their teachers. So a number of things that we've done over the course of the year include taking pieces of our curriculum and converting it to um, a digital platform. So we use the Google suite of tools using Jamboards, using slides, using docs when necessary and forms. Uh, we took lessons from our curriculum and put them into a format that teachers could share with students to be used asynchronously, that teachers could uh, present during a synchronous meeting, uh, and doing things that way. Um, for the very beginning of the year, we created what we call digital scavenger hunts. So these were um, also based in the, in the Google suite, materials for students to use so that they could get familiar with all the things that would have to be done online to submit work or to you know, enter text into a text box and things like that uh, to get them ready. And, and those, were, those were requested almost immediately whenever, whenever COVID hit. Um, it happened for us right around mid-March um, that, that we closed the buildings where we work. And within a couple of weeks, we had some new resources that we were releasing to teachers to kind of keep them going for the remainder of the year. And once we saw the writing on the wall that you know this was going to be around for a while, we started making plans to have things for the 2021 school year so that they'd be ready as soon as possible. We also created uh, a revised set of guidance documents. So the scope and sequence that goes with our curriculum, um, the assessment items that we have and the assessment tools that we use, uh, we recreated some of those. In some cases, we created brand new ones. We revised the scope and sequence to give teachers guidance. You know, you're going to have limited time this year. Um, your students are going to come in potentially a little bit underprepared because they had missed some opportunities for learning in the spring. How can you make sure that they stay on pace and how can you hit grade level learning so we did a lot of revisions to those kinds of things. Uh, and then the one thing that I'm really proud of us doing, um, the Math Learning Center is a, a not-for-profit organization, and we provided student kits. So the materials that we have in, our, in the bins that we provide to districts, we put collections together of, individually for students that we then um, were able to uh, sell to schools actually a little bit below cost when we started. Um, so we were able to provide that so that students who were at home and occasionally catching up with their teachers synchronously would have the materials that they would need to use to still get that hands-on experience, which is so important for young kids. So I'm curious, uh, it, it sounds like all that work, you must have a huge staff, but I'm guessing you don't have a huge staff. So <laughs> just guessing, but it, I mean... He did say, he did say <laughs> not for profit. <laughs> um, we don't have a huge staff, but we do have huge bags under our eyes these days after all that work. Sure. Um, but, but what I will say is we have an incredible staff. Um, the, the Math Learning Center, we are not-for-profit because of Bridges 2, and it was released around the time of Common Core coming out and Ed Reports doing what they do. Uh, Bridges 2 has been, I, I mean, the only way to describe it is commercially successful, uh, and it allows us to do a bit more than a typical nonprofit might be able to. So we're in, we're in a very good position in that regard. Um, and we, we were able to do these things without too much worry um, you know, about any revenue generation or things like that, we could do the things that we thought were the right things to do because we're in a very good position right now. Um, but yeah, we have a we have a team of about uh, six writers and then um, I don't know about four or five other people who serve as directors and managers 
um, that we're getting this going. We recruited a group of about 20 teachers um, that we know from across the country who use Bridges, and they helped us develop some of those tech-enhanced activities when we first started out. Um, so it, it absolutely took took an army to get this off the ground. So I'm curious, Tim and I both worked for um, Key Curriculum, you know, so a, so a middle high school hands-on inquiry type of program. And we always struggled trying to get that into schools because it was hands-on and inquiry and it cost more money and it took more professional development. So do you find that uh, a challenge? Um, I know elementary tends to be different. They're expecting to do the hands-on more so than they do in high school. So it seems like it's expensive and that professional development is almost a requirement to help teachers know how to use all this stuff. So is that a challenge? You know, it is a little bit, but I think um, we have a very good reputation. Um, We did get green marks across the board when Ed Reports, uh, you know, reviewed our materials. So I think that really helps us. Um, And regarding the professional development, we do sell the boxes of materials, the printed curriculum that goes into the hands of teachers. But the professional development that goes with it, we provide at no charge. So districts don't have to worry about that cost. And we make sure that all teachers are prepared to use it. The big challenge, as you certainly know, is that districts don't always have the time and are able to make available the teachers to do that. Um, But in terms of being able to put it out there, we're able to do that pretty easily. I think the biggest thing is that people who have used our program are, I mean, they're just so sold on the results that they get with students and the kind of effect that having that hands-on learning has. We actually don't have a marketing budget, really. Um, It's only been in about the past year that we've had a director of communications who who does anything like that, it's all been word of mouth. Teachers tell each other at conferences or neighboring districts. Um, you know, our best example right now is the state of Wisconsin. One district started using it. You know, they told two friends and they told two friends and, you know, almost the entire state of Wisconsin is now using our curriculum because they, they find it so valuable. Um, they almost have a statewide PLC kind of going organically. So we don't, we don't have to worry as much about that kind of stuff. Of course, now in the time of COVID, I think that everybody who puts out curriculum uh, is a little worried about, you know, where the funding is and what's going to happen over the next couple of years. So I'll brag, I'll brag on Patrick's product more than he does. I mean, I think what Bridges did and beat everybody to it was, and he mentions Ed Reports. And I don't know, Karen, that we've talked a lot about Ed Reports. So we might put a link in the show notes for those of you who want to know. I mean, briefly, Ed Reports is a nonprofit that evaluates curriculum for adherence to the um, rigor and uh, breadth of the Common Core, and then provide some basic guidelines for that schools can use as they're evaluating curricula. And a lot of the inquiry-based curricula, when the Common Core first came out, and I say this as someone who worked for a company who did this, because most of them are small companies and nonprofits, they really didn't rewrite to the Common Core. They took what they had and tried to make it work for the Common Core. And Bridges was the first program to really, I mean, and it might have just been good fortune in terms of it timed out timed out with a revision that they were going to do anyway. Patrick, you might know that. But it was the first one to come out and actually redo and say, all right, no, we have to actually start from the Common Core and build a curriculum and did it. And they did it right, which took them from being a regional cool curriculum to now, like Patrick said, a commercially successful, nationally viable program that competes with any of the largest companies. No, that's 100% spot on exactly what happened. Our CEO, Rick Ludeman, and our executive director at the time, Dan Ragusi, um, made a very clear choice that we had to hit Common Core. Um, and you know, knowing a bit what Ed Reports was going to be reviewing for, made sure that we hit all the important things of that, 
while staying true to our philosophy about what's important in education. So I'm curious, uh, you know, Common Core is so politically charged when you say that and states are, you know, changing, quote unquote, their standards. So they're not Common Core, even though we know that's mostly not true. (laughs) Has that been, uh, has that backfired on you that you are specifically very aligned to the Common Core? I think backfired would be a strong word for sure. There are certainly states who are very resistant to Common Core, and we don't have a very strong footprint in those states. You know, Texas for sure, uh, we don't have as much penetration into the state of Texas as we would like to have, um, knowing all the schools there and all the kids that we could help. Um, But that said, you know, all of the other states have been willing to look at our materials. The state of Virginia has always had their own standards. There are districts in Virginia that use bridges, use it very effectively. Their students are not suffering on the state assessments. So I, I feel like we've had a pretty good impact uh, across the country generally. Um, even states where the standards are different, we attempt to uh, help with uh, aligning what we have to their current standards. And honestly, some districts, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but they kind of in some ways didn't care that ours was a little different. If a standard was in third grade and we hit that thing in fourth, they were kind of okay waiting a year for it. And they've admitted that to us. So it, it hasn't really been a major detriment. And as you alluded to, even though the standards may have a different title on them, they're all pretty darn close to Common Core. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Patrick, I'm going to tee one up for you um, because I think this is, I mean, since we're not just talking to people in the business, like three of us, so lots of teachers, there's the whole, there's no book that can really reach my kids. And so you have teachers who want to write, like I can make up my own activities or I can go to Teachers Pay Teachers and spend two bucks like give folks a, a picture of like, I mean, without giving a whole course in terms of the number of people and the amount of effort that goes into designing a curriculum that's more, I mean, not so much that teachers can't do it, but it's just literally hours in the day. I just want to make sure people have a perception of the amount of time, effort, and energy that goes into producing a program like Bridges or producing a program like the Discovery Textbooks. Oh, goodness. Um I probably shouldn't say the budget that we had for Discovery Tech Book, but I can tell you that at one point when I was the director of math at Discovery, we had 90 independent consultants working on the product. Uh, and that was across, you know, assessment, the lesson development. Um, there were digital interactives that we were putting in there. It was, I mean, it was massive for sure. Um, and, um, and that's only the ones who are directly, you know, underneath me. There were, there were others in tangential groups that were involved as well. Um, I don't know the exact number that did Bridges 2, uh, that was developed before I had arrived at MLC, but it was also a very large number. Um, and I know that the production staff was, you know, a solid 10 people. There were at least probably 10 to 12 writers that I know of. Um, it's an incredible amount of work. I think, I think there's two pieces to this. Um, so one is that people who put together curriculum are thinking about the connections from one lesson to another and how to make sure the coherence occurs entirely across the grade, which if you're doing that as a teacher night by night, it's a little harder to see the big picture. And we have time to reflect on it before we put those things together into a curriculum. So that's the one benefit of it. The other one you mentioned is, you know, I know that there are OER resources out there available that teachers can grab and there's a bunch of free stuff, but are you really going to ask a teacher who spends, you know, six hours a day in class and another two hours grading you know, to go look every night to spend two hours to find the right resource. And and you hit the nail on the head that there are sites like Teachers Pay Teachers and there are free things out there. And a teacher who is in a little bit of, um, you know, 
panic mode because they need to get a lesson ready for tomorrow. They don't have time to look through the through the best resources and find the the most exceptional one. They pick something that's going to work well enough. I mean, I even think about like the models that we use in the Bridges curriculum. They're faithful across the grades. If you're a teacher who's planning night by night, you may have a model that does something one way that you use now, and a month from now, you may have a different resource that uses a different model. And all of a sudden, the kids are going, I don't understand how these two are related. It takes away class time to explain how they're related, or more likely, you never explain how they're related and kids are confused. And so we have the ability to put all that stuff together. And and just it's just an incredible amount of effort that we put in on the front end to make sure that the, the curriculum flows seamlessly for them. I think you alluded, it's not just the horizontal piece, because you can say, yes, as a teacher, I sit and think through the year, I'm doing my unit plans or my plan, this is what I'm going to do. But it's that vertical piece as well. And if you're a third grade teacher, like how much time are you spending worrying about second grade and fourth grade? And you now have a team of people who that's what they do. That's their livelihood is to think about how do we make sure these connections are being made, not only within a grade, but between the grades. I mean, the joy of the Common Core is not just in terms of its alignment within a grade, but how it's very purposefully progresses the mathematics from grade to grade. And you I mean, you guys think about that so that I, as a humble teacher who teaches one grade level of students, doesn't have to. I hope so. <laughs> I don't know how I would teach without being able to trust the curriculum I have. It would be incredibly more stressful than my job already is. Absolutely. So speaking of that, so that that is often a problem with some teachers is they feel they have to follow the curriculum page by page, day by day. Uh, I mean, what kind of flexibility is built into curriculum like that to work with different, you know, school situations? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there, there are a number of things that we've been able to do since the curriculum was released. And, and one of the, um, amazing pieces that we have at math learning center is we have a suite of apps that show how to use the the mathematical models that we have in the curriculum. So, you know, a number line or number pieces uh, or a geo board, um, we have apps that can do that. So one of the ways that that we want teachers, and I hope the teachers are, are embellishing the curriculum that we give them on paper, is the ability to use those digital pieces. So for the districts that have access to that technology, I hope that students are occasionally using the apps to to um, you know, try things. The digital apps are much faster. I know that for teachers, they love them because they don't have as much cleanup with picking up little number pieces off the floor. Um, so we we hopefully provide space in the curriculum where those kinds of things can happen pretty easily. Uh, in terms of like bringing in completely new activities, um, while I don't think we'd necessarily be opposed to it, I'd also have trouble knowing whether or not that fits with what came before and is going to set up what comes in the future. So I'd, I'd want just teachers to be cognizant of the fact that anything they use and they bring in from the outside is going to mesh well with the rest of the curriculum. And that's not an easy decision to make. Hand, hand clap emoji, hand clap emoji. So, okay. So professional development obviously is very important with most new curriculum, but yours, you know, hands-on manipulatives, all that stuff, it's going to be important. So do you have, especially in this COVID world of virtual everything, are there like videos that you provide for teachers? Because that that I know is a big thing now is that teachers can get kind of on-demand professional development in their own time to see what, they're sh- what they should be doing or how they could implement, you know, your virtual manipulatives or something. Yeah, there's all kinds of resources that we provide. So 
Uh, one of the things that we had started to do, uh, I mentioned the tech enhanced activities that we created in the Google suite uh, that's based on our curriculum. Once a month, we were offering a webinar and we, we actually still sort of continue to do that, but now just in video format. Initially, it was a webinar and we would really release the replay. So the teachers every month would have a chance to say, okay, unit one, these are the activities Math Learning Center released. This is how we can use them in the classroom. These are the kinds of uh, supplemental things that go along with them. So that was sort of a very specific COVID response. But the other piece is that um, pre-pandemic, every one of our workshops was handled face-to-face. There's a belief for sure that face-to-face PD is the most effective, and I, and I still believe that to be true. One of the challenges we had, though, is sending people out to every school that wanted the PD, especially for little schools. You know, So you can imagine a school where there's uh, one class for each grade. They have six teachers to be trained. And we have to send somebody, you know, 2,000 miles on a plane and get to the school and and all the stuff that's involved with that. So one of the things we had already started looking at was, is there a way for us to deliver that PD remotely? And so we had started thinking about it, hadn't gotten very far in our thinking, and then the pandemic forced us to think a little more seriously. So our educator support team took the face-to-face professional development workshops that we offered, converted it to digital created some self-study modules so that there were things that uh, teachers could do to prep. And then we would run some virtual meetings where we could actually have the discussion and the interaction that we'd want. And then there's some videos that they can watch then in between before a second day that's virtual. And then some self-study modules to complete after the fact. So the total amount of time for PD that we offer uh, in the old term of seat hours uh, has not diminished and in fact increased a little with virtual. And while there are some pieces that probably aren't as robust as they used to be. Most of the pieces actually are in some ways better because a teacher has time to sit sit with them and think a little bit about what this all means as opposed to in a face-to-face where though we give the interactive time, you know, it's, it's a little bit more rushed because it happens over a two-day period. So I think in some ways what we now offer is an improvement over what we did in face-to-face. Well, I'm glad you said that. That's actually what my uh, doctoral dissertation was about, you know, a, a hybrid professional development and it actually does have a a better impact on teacher implementation because they do have that time they get see it then they try it and then they come back and talk about it and then they try something else and and it is better so i it's exciting to hear that you're seeing that yourself in your own in your own work yeah absolutely so let me ask a question tangential to that which is both on the product side in terms of the curriculum and on the pd side what are things that your your team are saying like, hey, post-COVID, hey, these are some good ideas and we're going to continue to run down this road. And conversely, what are some things you're like, I cannot wait till COVID's over so we can go back to doing things the way they should be done? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's probably a lot in that one. So, I mean, all of the resources that we produce. So one of the first things we did when COVID hit was we created a, a site called Math at Home. And we knew that there were going to be parents stuck at home with their kids. And we just wanted to give some activities that, that Bridges students could engage in with their parents, knowing that everybody was going to be going a little crazy for a while. Uh, at the time, we had this belief that it was going to be for a couple of weeks, and that's obviously extended much, much longer. But the Math at Home site has been improved, added to, and that's going to stick around forever. We're really excited about keeping that going, quite honestly, forever. You know, it's, it's very similar, as we talked about earlier, about like the Illumination site, where they're just great resources. And even though the teachers may have seen them before, new kids are going to need to experience them. 
Well, and I love the support for the parent. I mean, and that that's such a big part of this is getting them involved in something that maybe they weren't taught that way. So it's a way to help them also. Absolutely. We, you know, an important part of that was questions you could ask your kids that we include with that. Um, some sample student responses, what their kids might say and what you do with that. Um, one of the big things when COVID first hit, everybody being stuck inside, one of the routines that we included was called Math in Our World. And we would actually ask kids to go outside and take a look in their neighborhood and, you know, find a rectangular plot of land or, or a straight line on the street or, you know, whatever it is that they could, they could identify in their neighborhood. But the other things that we've developed, the, the tech, technology enhanced activities, those are going to stay in perpetuity. We think there's a use for them, whether you're in classroom or virtual. Um, and we think that teachers are finding ways to do that, especially teachers right now who are in a hybrid mode, partially in school and partially out. And I think those are the two big things. The remote getting started workshops that we provide, though, I think those are going to stay forever because it is a way for us to reach those small schools. It's a way for us to reach many teachers at once. And I was actually just speaking with our VP of Educator Support uh, prior to this, and he was saying that a lot of things that, that teachers are right now requesting is they've been in COVID mode for a year and they've sort of gotten through during the pandemic. They want a refresher on how to use bridges when they go back into the classroom next year. Fingers crossed that that's going to be able to happen in the fall. And, and we can provide that with, that with that virtual professional development that we've put together. Right. I mean, refresher and then even, you know, what happens in schools, change of uh, staff and there's a new one single new person. You don't come back and do professional. They can get online and work with the other teachers. So, yeah, that's going to serve a lot of purposes. Absolutely. And, and one of the concerns that we've always had is we offer this PD, you know, at the end of the first year or second year of implementation, there are things that teachers are now thinking about going I think they talked about this way back when, but I don't remember. If we have it just freely available, they can access it at any point and uh, and get their own refresher. So on the product side, so traditionally, and I, all right, I'll be honest, I don't know if I know Bridges well enough to know the answer to what I'm about to say. But traditionally, a K-5 curricula involves some sort of a consumable print workbook that they hand out to kids every year, and the kids write through it, and then the schools buy another set the next year. First of all, I guess I don't know if Bridges had that model before. I'm assuming teachers have gone mostly digital because now they're doing everything virtually. Um, do you see a return back to a print-based curriculum learning, or do you think that digital is here to stay at the K-5 level? Can I say yes? Because um, I, I think... I, I, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, because I think, it's, I think it's both of those things. I don't think... I think that there are plenty of districts who are going to want to continually have the, the print consumables. And, and Bridges does, in fact, have that. Uh, we call them student books. Um, we also have um, things that we call home connections, things that students can do with their parents that aren't necessarily, eh, I guess they're still technically a consumable as well. But but we have that component. I also think that, you know, digital is here to stay for a good long time afterwards. And we have a lot of things, uh, all the resources that I talked about already, one of the things I hadn't said too much about because there's going to actually be an e-blast going this afternoon. But one of the things that we created we had teachers saying in the time of COVID, we want students to be able to complete some of those student workbook pages. Can you create fillable PDFs for us? And our resistance to it was fillable PDFs are actually pretty awful to create because they're one by one. And even the automated process, they often put boxes in the wrong place or they don't put boxes where you always need them. And there's a manual touch. And I think that our print consumables over the course of the sixth grades have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 5,000 pages of PDF. So this was going to be a very massive effort to do this. What we've created instead is an app 
that has all of the PDFs preloaded for a grade. And we have drawing tools in all of our other apps. So the ability to write on, to add text, add equations. We now have the ability for a student to pull up any one of those PDFs, write on it directly, and then either save that directly to their Google Drive to be able to use in Google Classroom and share with their teacher. Uh, or we have something that we call a share code. A student can generate a share code, give that code to their teacher, and their teacher will see the PDF with the writing on it. So there are ways that we can sort of, you know, take advantage of what we already have. We know that teachers, especially elementary teachers, Tim and I talked about this several months ago, they love their print. Our director of content development, who was a third grade teacher, said, you know, we, we, we talked about, should we only have a digital uh, teacher's edition? And she said, I love my binders, which because we put all of our materials in binders. So it's, it's just something that, that people hold on to, and I don't think we're going to get away from it. But we can also take the next step and, and bring some of those other things in as well. All right, that doesn't stop at K five. Like, I teach geometry, and I teach geometry and pre-calculus, and I don't know what I would do if I didn't have my print books here on my desk. Absolutely, call me old. I guess maybe we should interview teachers. I guess you know we have been a bit prejudiced greenhouse in our guests because I don't know that we've had a guest under the age. Of, not Patrick. I hate to say this, we haven't had a guest under the age of forty yet. All right, we need to start searching. So the younger generation may feel differently about these things than. Uh, us middle-aged folk. Yeah, I see it as an either. I see it as both. I, th- I think most of the teachers, like I work with younger teachers in my uh, Drexel work, and I think they like both because they each serve a different purpose. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because um, we have a, a digital version of our teacher's guide that we let some teachers try, and we got the feedback that they they generally wanted both. They wanted the print version so they could write notes on them and keep them you know, year after year. But they liked the digital one because it provided links to to things that they could then project in the classroom. So it wasn't they weren't willing to go away. And that was the school that I remember visiting. It had it had teachers from, you know, first year teachers to 20 year teachers. So it was a mix. So I, I want to circle back because we've sort of been making an assumption here. And as on the development side, I want to hear from you in terms of you know, obviously, you've developed books from across grade levels in different companies. But as uh, Greenhouse mentioned earlier, there is definitely a trend. And you talked about bridges and how bridges is very, uh, very much includes the implementation and use of manipulatives, whether they be physical manipulatives or virtual manipulatives. And there's this student engagement. Why do you believe that's important? Like you mentioned earlier, you didn't think you had a choice. Why did you not have a choice? Uh, yeah. So you know. What I what I learned in college and continued to see is that when students have an ability to actually do something rather than just be told something, it, it leaves it leaves a I don't know uh, an impression in the brain for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, moving materials around and then being able to make the connections. You know what I think about the ability to use symbols to describe mathematics, and that's so important that that developed over human history. But whenever only the final product is what we show students, they've missed out on all that rich, um, well, how, how did that come about? How was it created? Like, that's really, really important. It's a big piece of what the founders of the Math Learning Center actually brought out of the initial NSF grants that, that caused the organization to be formed. They visited classrooms. They saw kids using models. They saw kids wanting to draw pictures. And that's when it stuck. And, and I think that's just so important for students to see that aha moment that pops up when you're, when you draw a picture and go, oh, that's what's going on. It's, it's visceral. Like you can, you can feel a student understand and I never want to lose that. I want, I want students to have that feeling. That's when math is fun. You know, we always talk about the joy and the wonder and the beauty of mathematics. 
that's where it is. It was never in just solving an equation by, you know, following steps that the teacher told you to take. It was about actually doing something that you didn't know what to do when you started and you figured it out on your own. And you had that joy that came from, from actually solving it by yourself. And that leads me to my question. So I am in complete agreement with you. And I know Tim is too, because we worked for that kind of company. But I struggle right now with my students that I teach who are math teachers getting a master's program. And a lot of them are upper level. And we're doing a foundation class right now where we're starting with the elementary and the manipulatives and integers and inverse, but all about manipulatives. And they are so struggling with it because they just want to go right to the process, right? The symbolic manipulation. So your program is K through five. What would you then say would be the next curriculum that would continue that level? Because that I think is the disconnect is we have this great elementary program, but then the kids leave elementary and go into middle and high where that is no longer the focus. Yeah, I mean, so a, a plug for my former company, I think what we did for the middle school level with Discovery's Math Tech book was in the same vein. Um, the The difference is that sort of the playing and the manipulatives are, are digital so that it's not hands-on. Uh, but I still think students get a similar kind of thinking uh, as they use it. We also, there's another nonprofit who does uh, curriculum publishing, which is CPM. Um, and I think that's a great curriculum for middle school and high school. That's a good follow on as well. But, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, partially, it sounds like maybe you need a, a better admissions process at Drexel to get different kinds of students to come in. Um, <laughs> no, no. The whole but, point is we're changing them. You should see them at the end. They're fantastic. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, but, but I mean, you right there, the word you use, the changing, like there's an unlearning. Yeah. Excellent way to put it. Students learn these great ideas in elementary school and that curiosity and that wonder. And they, they go to middle school and high school and they're told, you know, do it this way, do it this way. Here's the steps. Here's the algorithm. And they, they forget that all the great problem solving strategies that they've experienced, you know, working backwards and, and creating a visual model and all these other kinds of things that they do, they kind of go out the window and it's like, nope, we got to write an equation. We have to solve the equation. That's the way that it's done. And so you, you got to fight past that. So there's, there's a culture shift when a I'm sure there's a culture shift when there's a student who comes into your classroom and you're asking them to think in a completely different way. It's like, we don't want you to think that old way because that's limiting. And so it's, it's, it's changing that. So I, I love to hear that you're, that you're doing that. I'm trying. Can I ask a question though, kind of related, like you think the pieces are falling and that it's going to all take over. And I really hope that, but I thought that for years and I haven't seen the change is just so slow. Um, and you listen to teachers, oh, it's just a fad for now, and we'll go back to the way things always were, you know, the traditional way of doing things. And a lot of it is still because of assessment. Like the way we assess students doesn't seem to be keeping up with the way that we're trying to teach students. And so do you see that being a big roadblock to this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't I don't know what it's going to take to get rid of them. Um, you know, one of the things that that we've been thinking about is, especially at the K five level, how can you use observational assessment, and how can you find ways to find out, you know, what kids are really doing. What I'm hopeful about is, I was just rereading um, Catalyzing Change, and I'm, I said earlier that I'm blessed in in my career. I've done a lot of great jobs. I now get to work with one of the authors of the Catalyzing Change book for K five, and it talks, you know, one of the things in Catalyzing Change that talks about is that a single a single assessment or a single data point to make big decisions in education is problematic. And I, and I feel like we're still there and I feel like the message is getting out. And what I, what I think keeps hitting me is that every curriculum director I talk to in schools is opposed to it. 
and they're trying to fight from within, the problem is the teachers have to do it because the upper administration is making it happen. Um, but people are looking for other ways to get out of it. And I feel like, you know, I feel like it used to be that there are metal handcuffs on curriculum directors, and now it's maybe just like nylon cord. And I eventually feel like they're going to break free and be able to make this change. Um, and and I'm, I just feel like the field is ready for the change. Everybody knows it's bad. This isn't news. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm continuing to be hopeful when I talk to young teachers and I hear what they're wanting to do and, and they think is effective. I feel like we're, we're ready to make a change away from it. So let me, I, I mean, we were talking about the different programs. So let me circle that back to a broader question from the perspective of a developer and a publisher. What advice would you give to the, the teacher or maybe the department chair who's sitting on the evaluation group for selecting a, a textbook and they're getting all of their logins to sample and they're getting all their sample boxes What's your advice as a publisher to those folks in terms of how they should go about determining what curriculum tools are going to work best for their community? Oh, I think that's a great question. So I think the first thing I'd say is they should buy bridges. Yeah, I almost, I almost, I almost put the caveat in, but don't say that. <laughs> no, I know. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Um, no, so... You know, I, I remember when uh, one of my mentors, Carrie Bolster, was in Baltimore County. Um, when it came time for curriculum adoption, they asked him what process he'd use. And he said, well, give me all the books you're considering. I'll put them at the top of the stairs and I'll kick them. And whichever one hits the bottom first is the one we'll go with, because no matter what we choose, we're going to supplement. What I think is different now is that each of the written curricula attacks the content in different ways. So what I would what I would recommend is there be a thorough study of the different curricula that seem to align, I would use EdReport as a starting place because then you at least know you get something that's coherent and aligned to the standards. I would take recommend that they take a thorough look to start. And then I can't stress this enough, I think that there needs to be a long-term pilot done in the school with your teachers. We're often presented with districts who want to pilot for six weeks in the middle of the year. So they have kids who are learning with one model. They, they, switch, they switch to a different curriculum. They're trying new things. And then the poor kids they ha- and the teachers too, they have to go back to something after they, I mean, heaven forbid, they love what they got the pilot and then they have to switch back. Um, it, it seems really unfair. It's, it's also just not thorough enough and teachers don't get a good sense for what the curriculum can do. Um, I can speak about what happens with bridges that a lot of times first year teachers, we'll tell them, you need to trust the curriculum. You have to, you have to rely on us. Cause one of the things we do is we bring ideas back later in the year. You're not going to hit mastery in unit three on this topic. It may not be till unit six or seven when kids see it again, and then it'll click. And if you're not willing to trust the curriculum that far along, it's never going to happen in a small pilot. We know it's not going to happen. And, and it's, and it's a short-sighted view um, I think you really have to be willing to invest, you know, curriculum decisions are typically lasting six to 10 years, depending on the district. Like, why not take the time to get it right? And and I would just like to add, because when Tim and I were out there, you know, working with Key, we would lose often, not because our curriculum didn't meet all the standards, but because we didn't offer, you know, a free projector with every, whatever, you know, like, like ridiculous <laughs> things that have yeah. nothing to do with the learning goals and the standards. So don't let the extras sway you. Focus on your standards and alignment. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, 
it's frustrating. And, and the number of curriculum directors who occasionally get taken to a nice dinner and, yeah. and the sales rep gets the sale for that reason. It's, it's not the right way it should happen. Well, now I feel a little bad as the guy who used to be a sales manager who would take sales rep, who would take sales reps to conferences and say, if you're having dinner by yourself or with your colleagues, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> And I've still told my colleagues now that I'm a teacher, they go to a conference. I'm like, you guys, if you pay for a dinner while you're at the conference, you're not doing it right. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Greenhouse, do you have any more questions? I think I got through my list. I think I got through mine as well. Well, are you going to end? Tim always ends with like a a big thought, like what, what two things or something. Well, this one is harder because I felt bad. You know, we've been trying... I'm thrilled that you came, Patrick, and I'm thrilled that you shared your experience and expertise. Most of our guests have been people that, like, I really didn't, I don't have any of their expertise. And I'm like, well, I know what Patrick's going to say, because he and I have talked, and we agree on all this stuff already. (laughs) Um, No, but I think it's important that teachers get a sense of, like, well, what is is life like on that publisher end? Um, In terms of, and I think you articulated really well the amount of effort and thought that goes into designing a curriculum and why that's so important. I mean, that to me, that's the biggest lesson that we can get out of this. Um, regardless, I mean, obviously the three of us share a pedagogical bias in terms of what we believe works and what we believe research shows works and our experience shows works. But regardless, even if you disagree with that bias, the need for that kind of coherence and consi- consistency Classroom teacher, we're not going to do it on our own. We just, I mean, not that we don't have the talent, we just don't have the flipping time. And why reinvent the wheel if someone else has taken the time and done the research and really made the alignment work? Why do we think we, why, why not trust them, right? If we know it's good. And how does that, how does that PD work? I mean, there's the phenomenal work that we do, that Greenhouse does in the graduate schools. I know the colleges of education, by and large, are doing phenomenal work. Curriculum folks do phenomenal work. At the end of the day, I mean, the one thing I'm learning this year is it's really, if you want change, you have to actually work day to day. I mean, granted, I'm only influencing six teachers now in any way, shape or form, but we talk every day and we we plan together every day. And it's like, oh, so that's why, I mean, I'm teaching pre-cal with a teacher right now and we're using Forrester's book and he had never taught out of it. He thought it was the most stupid thing ever. He's like, why would you ever teach out of the book? And now that we're working together, and he's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now that's why you do it. Um, it's not like I did any training. It's just he, we shared that daily experience of planning. And then, I mean, there's a credibility you get because like, all right, you, know, you deal, I'm dealing with the same kids you're dealing with. I mean, one of the things I'm hoping to get out of this podcast, both from folks like you and all the other phenomenal guests we have, is to help the classroom teacher who, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, is really... I mean, our job is to be feet on the ground, directly involved in the muck of it on a daily basis, to have a perspective and appreciation for the folks like yourself, whose task is no more or less important than ours, but you have the capacity and ability to look at it from a grander scale and to contribute that toward the broader effort. Yeah, what I, what I think you said is really important, that that we are able to put the time into developing great curriculum. Because there are things like the social and emotional needs of students that teachers need to attend to. And I want them to have the time to do that and not waste their energy on other things. That Those connections in the classroom are really important and, and potentially even more important than the content sometimes. And that's what a teacher can bring. Let, let's let them put that forth 
and you know and make sure that the experience is great for students. Wait a minute. I teach 16 and 17 year olds. Are you telling me they have social and emotional needs? <laughs> <laughs> that was well put, Patrick. Thank you. They just don't know that you have social and emotional needs, Tim. That's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving us giving us your time and sharing your expertise. It's been it's been phenomenal. Absolutely. This is great. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Um, Just a reminder to everyone to go to our website, 180days.education. Follow us and subscribe. You'll get our newsletter. And we release episodes the second and fourth Thursday of every month. And all the links and curriculum that was mentioned during this podcast, we will make sure in the show notes that we include all the links to that information. And again, thank you, Patrick. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.